0: Drive by Cinema Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun
1: Hello and welcome, it's episode 23 of Drive by Cinema I'm here with Paul Hi everybody And also Alistair yeah, happy new year Oh yeah, happy new year It's 2021, I'm Rick And it's time to start looking at... A new film for the new year. But we're looking back to a director we've seen the work of recently already. Ari Aster's previous movie before Midsummer, which is Hereditary. But before we do that, we have to see if there are any corrections
0: or additions we need to make about previous episodes. Well, can I just interrupt that? Ari Ari Aster produced this movie, What We're Gonna Watch Tonight, in 2018. Yes. Midsummer was 2019. Yes. So that's just one year per movie. Hmm. Are you saying that's a lot? So why do children in the playground shout, Faster, Faster, Ari, Ari, Asta?
1: <laughs> is, that, is that what they shout? Yeah. Are the,
0: are the, are the, do you know the rocking horse? The, what's that hobby horse thing on used to have on playgrounds? Like a mechanical rocking horse.
1: All those things on large industrial springs.
0: Yes, yeah, really dangerous. And then they go, Faster, Faster, Ari, Ari, Asta. Well,
1: maybe he was named after the song
0: and not the other way around. Or maybe it's like a premonition, you know. Maybe he is himself magical. Because we used to sing it like when we were kids and this is 30 years before Ari Ari Aster appeared. But perhaps he
1: was conceived in a children's playground like so many are. (laughs) Alistair, you were saying you had some comments to make about the previous... Yep,
2: I was just listening through the last episode on The Conjuring... From last week, so was Paul. Apparently, he just he's just downloaded it and tried to play it. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, we, we heard that yes. And you asked the you asked the question, Rick, about why whenever you see an exorcism in a film, it's always done in Latin. And you asked the question, why is this? These demons are supposed to be supernatural beings. Why do they always speak Latin? And I think yeah, what happened did they do a, did he do a correspondence course? No, I think it's just, just because they've got classical. They've, they've got classical educations, and they're just very well educated. But the reason why we see why why we see um we see it done in Latin is because the you only ever see them being done by Catholic priests, and the language, the lingua franca of the Catholic Church, is Latin. So it's the priests; they're not making any assumptions that just because they're in America, that this this particular demon is going to be an English-speaking demon. So they use the language of the church, which is Latin. Although it would be interesting to see um, an exorcism in a, I don't know whether they do them in films that are set in Russia or. I don't know uh, in any of the Eastern Orthodox Christian countries whether they do exorcisms there, because one would assume that they would use the vernacular there. I, I don't know, but I, my guess is that the demons that we see in in Hollywood type films are probably just very well educated. I would say. My other comment on The Conjuring, by the way, the above may may have been said with my tongue in my cheek. <laughs> the proceeding was not entirely serious. One of the things that struck out to me was that you you were really very very angry about about the film uh, about the country, <laughs> <laughs> and and that came down to <laughs> it came down to the fact that it's it's an alleged true story. And I was just yes. ma- I was reflecting on it. I was thinking that even though it says that at the start of the film, and even though I was looking up the Warrens as I was watching it, I actually I realised that that didn't come into my experience of the film at all. I just didn't for any minute, any moment, believe that this could be possibly real. So that's why I think that that didn't bother me, uh, I think, is that I just thought, this is <laughs> this can't be real. Yeah. I'm- but I, I do take your point that it's dangerous because it is based on a true story and there, there is, there is, you know, there's a risk of sort of stuff there. But I, I, it never occurred to me that it could be real, even though it said so. Some people do believe this stuff though, don't they? Yeah. And it wouldn't matter if
1: they were, the Blair Witch Project pretends that they keep up the the word keyfabe,
0: kayfabe. Paul, what does that what does that mean again? Well, it's, again, the definition of kayfabe says it's really hard to define, but it is the idea of maintaining a fourth wall in wrestling matches, professional, professionally staged wrestling matches, both in and outside the ring, so that pre-match the interviews with the two opposing wrestling teams are are, are very much hammed up. Hammed up, but also taken seriously as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh,
1: it's a carny term, isn't it? So it's presumably meant to cover a wide range of different performative arts and mild to deceptions and cons as well, come to think of it. So you can forgive a film for doing a bit of that and the Blair Witch Project pretends that it's real found footage, doesn't it? And it keeps up that pretense through its marketing. And I guess no one really believes that the Blair Witch really happened that way despite all of that stuff. My anger comes from the fact that they they have a bit of this this pretense going on that it's a true story, but it's also incredibly ineffective at being scary to me. I didn't find it scary. It wasn't effective. It didn't make me think, "Oh, this could have really happened." You know, the Blair Witch, so little genuinely paranormal, if anything, happens in it, that it could have happened. Like, it's plausible in a lot of ways. It's just a freaky, you know, sort of serial killer-esque type thing, ultimately, mm. isn't it? Whereas this requires you to believe in an entire cosmology of demon spirits, which I'm just never going to even... I'm not even on the footplate of that bus. Mm. So the whole thing <laughs> strikes me as silly. And I just don't... It doesn't achieve what it's trying to do for me. I think that's the problem.
2: But you're right; there is a bit of a paradox there. I completely admit that. When the Blair Witch Project came out, um, I, I knew a, a young chap who actually bought all of the publicity in advance and really believed it was true. You know, yeah. he really, really believed that it was genuine found footage, despite the fact that the the, the people who were in it are listed as actors. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: so I could I could argue I suppose that that's the same kind of damage but if you believed that the Blair Witch Project was true it wouldn't necessitate you believing that spirits can possess people and move objects and haunt houses where you know you just believe that there could be a Crazy person in the woods killing people. So
0: okay, but Richard, to the extent that you're angry about it, would you suggest that this film should be banned? Come with a health warning? Should be protested against in a formal way? Should be investigated by whichever censor body in whichever country creates the censor ratings? I mean, or just you know, or you just happy that your opinion about it being being naff? Is allowed to be broadcast and given, you know, given support. I mean, what, what would your corrective action be for, for for the sins of this film, so to speak? Like China, we should ban it.
2: We should control what the people can see and when they can see it. <laughs> no, that's what. No, the, it's this podcast, surely. This podcast is is a crusade. This is a force for good. We're warning people of the dangers of this sort of cinema. I think it's fine, yeah, that we can heap scorn on it.
1: Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, but I'm would you by would that.
0: you want more would you would you want more legally enshrined rights to prevent it being distributed?
1: No, I think I would be satisfied if people were educated enough to know when it's bullshit and, and when it isn't. Okay.
2: I've got one more point as well, which is I didn't want to leave Paul dangling with this one, but I've got uh, I, I've, oh, fa- I've got a definition of um, ecumenical for you because you asked me about that. Ah. Uh. Oikoumeni is the Greek or, uh, origin of it, and it means the whole inhabited world. So it is oh, um, a movement worldwide. within Christianity that promotes interfaith dialogue. Oh, there you go. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. There you are. I couldn't leave. I, I couldn't that leave come that, up again, because the movie that's
1: going to follow this musical break is all about demonology as well. well hooray! There you go.
0: So, Paul, what is the name of the movie? Yeah, I thought you were going to say, I thought it was going to come to the Richard Quiz, which is Paul. What movie <laughs> are you watching today? And I do know, just give me a few seconds to think about it. Okay. It's by Ari Aster, I know that much. Uh, and it's yeah. called Hereditary. It is. Am I right? 2018. Yep. Yeah. It precedes
1: Midsummer, and I guess made, made a bit of a name for himself. Did so- you like
0: it, Paul? Did it scare you or was it a comedy for you? So I mean, we've got in terms of horror movies. Now we've moved on to horror movies. We haven't we have a new rating, which is jump score or something, or what's it? Fright. We have the scores already. Blimey! No, but what's what's that new category we've got? Jump scares. We haven't given it a name, have we?
1: Jump scares. You, you said jump scares, but I don't think that's a good name because the best horror movies are not simply jump scares, are they? Correct.
2: Absolutely. And
1: there aren't very many
2: jump scares, if any, in this film. Maybe one or two.
0: Well, I thought it was quite scary. One yeah. one of the
2: comments yeah. on um, IMDb from a, a a viewer on this film was that they were tired of the of so many uh, modern horror films being just about jump scares and yeah. con- a, se- a whole sequence of them with a, with a thin story in between. And what was good about this is that it doesn't do much of that. And that's why Ari Aster's you know a growing force in yeah. the horror world because he doesn't depend lorded, on jump scares. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think we've gone through a period where horror movies meant gore porn kind of movies, torture porn, like Saw. I think James Wan, who did uh, who did The Conjuring, I think he was behind Saw. I think, or at least he did Dolls in Saw or something. So he's from that heritage. Hostel was another one of those sort of torture porn kind of films. But so I think we're now sort of post that era. Ari Aster seems to be representing that kind of thing a different kind of horror movie and I think it's good. So the story of this film it starts the very first shot actually is an obituary from a newspaper for uh, a lady. Now you might dismiss this as just a dedication to someone you know that you sometimes see during you know in the credits of films where presumably someone in the cast or crew has died or and they dedicate the film to them. But this is all part of the plot, isn't it? It's actually describing the death of the grandmother of the family we're about to see. And it has a bit about the biography of her. And we see the family coming back from the funeral of Granny. And it's a uh, husband and wife, played by uh, Gabriel Byrne and Tony Collette. Is that? That's right. They're two kids. There's a, a girl called Charlie, the younger girl, and an older brother called Peter. Uh, Charlie's a bit weird in the kind of way that kids can be, and she's quite creative and draws things and stuff. And as we see later on, cuts the heads off birds and uh, <laughs> sleeps in the treehouse and that kind of thing. And Peter's just like a
0: you, you know young teenager. Yeah, but Peter, I I see I I couldn't read Peter as being sixteen years old. I I read him as being eighteen or nineteen or maybe back from college, potentially twenty yeah. years old. Like the actor just looks too. Old for the role, and they've not done the appropriate amount of makeup. Oh, I thought it was really sloppy, like presenting him like that, because he just—I mean, I know stoners look older than they than they are, kind of thing. You know? Why do you think he was only sixteen? Well, that's how he's presented in the movie, isn't it? a Sixteen-year-old.
2: He could be eighteen. Could he not? No, no he's, 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 hes junior he's, high school. He's—I um I think it says he's sixteen somewhere. But he's at junior But he high can drive. He can drive. I thought the age yeah, but tri- fifteen. Oh, he's, the yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And um, Charlie's thirteen, I think. Thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. She's a she's an ex. I think I think Wikipedia describes her as being troubled and eccentric. Is is the way that <laughs> yeah. it describes her.
1: One of the things about horror movies is, and this has probably always been true, a horror movie has this job, doesn't it? It's got to start off with things being ordinary, and then things are going to go weird mm. and horrific. And I presume it's doing that so you start to relate to the ordinariness of the start of the movie. And, you know, you then see yourself, you empathise, you put yourself in the shoes of the victims, you know, the people in the, the, the movie as things get really weird. So as a consequence, during horror movies, you watch a hell of a lot of kind of just bland soap opera family life TV or film, don't you? Mm. Yeah, It always starts off with all of the ordinary stuff, the most mundane things happening. It is a bit as like this, watching
2: Casualty, isn't it? You are waiting, <laughs> looking out for the signs of what's going to go amiss, aren't you? But <laughs> a I, little bit, a little bit.
1: Like, I mean, obviously, Casualty doesn't have quite the length of time to do it, no. so it's all a bit breathless, but isn't they it? they
2: also, I noticed, as soon as they pointed out when when Charlie was eating a big, massive wedge of chocolate and and uh, someone says, that, have you checked that that's not got nuts in it? I thought, oh... Nut allergy. Yes. So either they're just pointing out that she's got some quirks here, or that's going to become a thing later on.
0: We also get, ah, uh, you know, Grandma wanted you to be a boy. Oh, I yes. used to be a tomboy when I was a kid too. You know that kind of thing. So we get that idea that Charlie. Either it's like you know, a slightly transphobic movie as a whole, or it's more a, a pointer that, that 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 Charlie is weird in other ways too. I.e., I don't know.
2: But, well, the weird that emerges in this film, I think, re- is very difficult to predict. I, I could not have imagined how it was going to pan out at the end earlier on in the film. Uh, it, it doesn't. Whilst you can see things looking back, the bats that are shitting are most definitely in the belfry <laughs> at the start. And it, it takes quite a while for them to appear to me, which I think is great. I think that's part of Ari Aster, from what I've seen in these two films, yeah. This and Midsummer. that the pacing's quite mm. extraordinary. You know, it's not... It's not obvious what's going to happen. The pace builds quite continually,
0: but at the same time, what I like is—I don't know if you like this or not—is is when suddenly this the ridiculous levels of violence just happen for a minute or two, you know, mm. like the, the car crash. You know, I mean, it's like who were expected. Well, this dis- well, expected, yeah. like like this this horrid, horrid double decapitation or whatever happened. You know, it's like oh, well, or whatever but- happened. You know, it's like just grotesque, isn't it?
1: I was trying to figure out whether the bit that you're referring to is more like the suicide at the start of Midsummer, yeah, or more like the Atterstoup, which the turn, you know, oh, where it's a bit of both, things, isn't it? It is a bit of both in a way. It's it's mm. mundane and everyday. There's not much paranormal about it. So so what happens is, and I should just say, you know, there's not much I think in this movie, maybe all Ari Aster's movies, but there's not much in this that doesn't relate to the the subsurface plot that's going on at the start, you know. Even at the very beginning, just after they come back from the funeral, I think, maybe a day or so later, dad gets a phone call. And you don't hear the other side of the phone call, but you can deduce from what he's saying that he's being told that granny's grave has been desecrated. And later on, you see pictures indicating that it's she's been dug up, actually. Mm. But they don't really talk about it. I don't think he really mentions it to his wife. No, I I think it, that's to right. From, he, except all,
2: all that you know is that it's been desecrated. There's no detail given, mm. and I think he decides not to tell her because she's already got enough going on, and he doesn't want to bother her with it. But I think the start, the very start of the film, is them getting ready to go to the funeral. Possibly because so, I yeah. think Dad yeah. brings, um, yeah, Dad brings Peter's suit in and lays it on his bed and says, "Oh he yeah. needs to go and then they go and wake Charlie up who's sleeping in the treehouse. And then you hear Mum's eulogy at the funeral, and that's where there are so yes, many. You there do. are. There's a first hint of something a bit odd there because. Well, yeah. I mean, the eulogy is just like bitching about her mother, isn't it? Oh yeah, she say. With, well, she, she she says she was an extremely secretive, and private individual, and one of the things mm. that well, I think the first thing she says actually is, how how nice it is to see so many um unfamiliar faces here. So like, there's mm. a load of people that she's never seen before, at, are at a mum's funeral and. And one of them gives Charlie the creepiest of smiles when she's um, walking past the coffin. It's it's deeply uh, uh, disturbing. And then, of course, he appears later, stark all, like, naked, doesn't he? As do a lot of the supporting
1: cast, yeah. yes. And uh, the mum and granny in the coffin are both wearing the same necklace. Yes. I don't know if you noticed that yes. at the funeral. It's actually the symbol of the demon king that they're going to summon later, mm-hmm. King Paimon. Uh, it's not a very good icon. <laughs> all of the demons have really poor iconography. They they really need to get some branding experts in.
2: Oh, some of them are all, some of them are better. This is one of the worst ones, I think.
1: But this one—they're all a bit fussy and monochrome. I mean, they're easy to render in a carving or in a little
0: Bits of bit of jewelry. I guess.
1: Yeah. Be no use for a favicon. They'd be completely lost on a on a on a screen of iPhone icons.
0: Uh, at some point, they guess. refer to an unholy book or a holy book, and
2: it's all—it seems to be in Sanskrit. Is this was um, it in
0: Sanskrit, Alistair?
2: I, not the, no, I don't think so. I think the the was book. It, Indian, it was an Indian script. The I think, only of some book sort. that I'm I'm aware of that this this demon Paimon is is in that I'm aware of anyway is just looking it up very briefly was um, the Lesser Key of Solomon. Ah. Yeah, which I think is Hebrew. I'm guessing Hebrew, but there's a the, reference. I think that, there
1: are three books that that mention. There, is there there's more than one? The sort of demon bestiaries. Yeah, and they go through and list all of the different demons. Seventy-two and demons. The, the, that's I think the most is, famous. Is
2: world. it seventy-two yeah. demons, that, and some of them are kings of hell? Something like that. Yeah. yeah, we're going well ahead in the story here, though, aren't we? We're jumping, we are, jumping yeah. ahead a lot. I along think here. we have
0: to get back to the anaphylactic shock and the party. Well, on. <laughs> let's
1: talk about art. Let's talk about the kind of art which is making little sculptures of rooms <laughs> and people, dioramas, which is what the mum of the
0: family does yeah, as right. her job, no less. Yeah. We're talking here about Nordic, <laughs> Nordic or, or people of Nordic origin and their voodoo. Nordic voodoo, aren't we? It, it, voodoo Sylvanian, was what I thought when Sylvanian I was families. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sylvanian families. Sylvanian families voodoo, you know, never buy a Doll's House ever again.
1: Yeah, I'd quite like to go to an exhibition of this kind of stuff. I thought it was quite uh, entertaining. This, this art,
2: I think um, Annie's uh, Tony Collect's characters models were very good, weren't they? And she yeah. was, but she was making a model of her life. And I, I that this is where I think one of Ariaster's themes. I mean, it's it, it's a small small set sample set, isn't it? Because there's only two films that we're going off here. But the the, the things that I've picked up. Or well, one of the things I've picked up in both. Yeah, it's amazing that after two films, we've got a series of kind of director trademarks. Oh yeah, but well, there are, <laughs> aren't there? I mean, I think this is—it's—it's it's people trying to understand their lives within the context of emotional anguish. Um, I think you know, because whilst Annie's mum dying might be, might be the end of a of a difficult period in life, because it's, I think, is it said that she had dementia towards the end of her life and she lived so, in the yeah, family? Yeah. Actually, Annie says that she had DID. Which oh, is that's DID? a dissociative identity disorder. Oh, it's wow. basically
1: multiple personalities, yeah, as yeah. we used to call it. Yeah, That's right, so, yeah. That's a really interesting and again subtly made point, isn't it? You'd have to really catch and understand that to know what that really meant.
2: Is that when she was talking in the uh, the, support, the group. support group? Yeah, yeah she said yeah. that's right. Yeah, well, her whole family's had um, a his- a, an extensive history of quite severe mental illness.
1: So they say.
2: Yeah. Well, indeed, <laughs> yeah. It's obviously it's an ending of 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 a particularly difficult period, and her mum lived with the, with them. Uh, she lived mm. in that in that home. But it seems right. that it's not really it's not really brought a great deal of relief to the family that she's no longer there. And they're, they're trying to deal suddenly. I think it's given them the space to start trying to deal with it. But they're all emotionally very, very either confused or cut off. And the interesting one, of course, is that the father, who's a psychiatrist, doesn't appear to know how to reach any of them. <laughs> um, but I, I suspect that Annie's trying to make sense of her life by making it small, so that she can see it all and maybe even control representations of it.
1: Yeah. It's creepy, though, isn't it? It's a very
0: creepy element. I found it that you know all, well, she all even of those makes a model
2: models. of the uh, of the car accident, doesn't she?
0: Have you ever been the subject of voodoo? I have.
2: Huh?
0: Yeah, I, I was living in Preston, of all places. I'm not oh yeah, uh, it, but... hotbed of. Uh, of voodoo voodooism. magic, <laughs> but I was living in of places, and I wouldn't recommend that. But not because of the voodoo, but also because of the voodoo experience. <laughs> and the, so, so I was living in a place called Cadley Place, which is kind of like Cadley Place, uh, I, number ten. I can't remember what it was. And so, you know, I, I would cycle my little mountain bike to. So I had a really happy. I think it was two thousand and five. I had some factory job, and it was used to cycle home as the birds were tweeting late. Like, Late on a summer's evening, I loved it. It was a simple life, and I loved it. But anyway, so yeah, I was cycling back, and then I come back, and then every time I come back, there'd be a mannequin of me, like on my bicycle, in the house next door. It's a voodoo voodoo mannequin kind of thing. And then you know, like, well, hold, on, hold on, hold on. Hold
1: and then I'd be on. doing something else in the be, garden. I'm like, sorry,
0: you can't let that pass. What's a voodoo mannequin? Well, <laughs> it's like the little. It's like a little, almost like, like do you know, beanbag you used to throw at school. Right, like a it's, beanie baby. Like, a, yeah, it's just obviously voodoo So when you uh, say
1: mannequin, you don't mean a full-size thing? No, not, not like a no, no, dummy. small,
0: short window dummy. And I could see it. Just, I lived in a semi with a bay, and it was in the other bay. And then so, I'd be okay, doing... Okay, so let me get this straight. You see, in next door, a little... Because it had a biking helmet on and all that kind of stuff, you know. And the bike <laughs> see, the same colour as mine. Little... And it appeared, like, about a week after I started riding the bike. Yeah, <laughs> And then, like, I'd be doing something in my house... Right, like, like, what was it? I don't know. I think we were out, yeah, out in the back garden in a deck chair. And then the next, like, week I was on a deck chair in the window, <laughs> kind of thing. And there were pins in the doll, you know. And so, yeah, so it is powerful, not because of any anything magical, just because it's, it's you know, to see yourself like that, you do start to worry about. It would freak you the fuck out. You'd wonder know what you know, the hell they're going It's they were because, do because next. it freaks you out,
1: you see. Yeah. You know? But it makes you feel you It puts what the reflection done? back on you, you see. What you ha- what had you done to draw the malevolent well, ire of
0: your next door? About three weeks earlier, it, it was a cul-de-sac, like you know the U-shaped coals, coals that go in and then come out on the uh, higher up on the same main road junction, like a little yes. U thing. Yes, and so I turned in on my bicycle, and I was you know there's no cars behind me, so I was it, it's a small cul-de-sac kind of road, so I was just driving down, the, I was riding down the middle of the road at yep. bicycle speeds as you're getting home you slow down maybe 10 12 14 miles an hour and then i heard this loud protective protective beeping and it was the guy behind me in his bm who lived next door and he obviously wanted to get past but he couldn't do because it, it was a small call outside road so i, I kind of didn't move around because i didn't move out of the way because i was going around the bend and another 80 yards would take us both home and he was beeping and he kind of pushed my back tire as we got to the, to the curb and then he got out and said, if you do that again, I'm going to ram this thing right up your ass kind of thing. I was like, whoa, bad day at work, mate. I didn't really think anything of it. But then the voodoo started appearing two or three weeks later. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't sound it's like somebody who needs to
2: resort time. to voodoo. He sounds like someone who's just going to be very violent. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, Voodoo's a bit
1: passive-aggressive, isn't it? It's the ultimate Passag thing, isn't it? I really hate you, I'm going to make a doll, and I'm going to put
2: pins in it. (laughs) (laughs) It does suggest sustained malevolence, though, doesn't it? That's the thing. Yeah. Well, maybe that was was his uh, hobby for his uh, bored housewife or something. The
0: power of Voodoo there is like, you know, I'm watching you. Because it confirms that they're watching you because... You can see it physically represented. You know, evil the No, it's freaky.
2: Life, you know? That is freaky. I must so admit. it is
0: powerful. The effect it has on you, yeah. you know, outside of the magic. Wow.
1: Wow. Well, that's quite a story, Paul. I've never, yeah. I've never knowingly had voodoo used on me. I don't. And I, I don't guess if you don't know, it can't possibly do you know, anything to you, can it?
0: What's happening? Anyway, so, yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> what are you doing are you under control? <laughs> I'm just going
1: to start banging my
0: head against the against
1: the desk. Anywho, we should pick up this story again. Try to get up to the point where this thing happens, shouldn't we? At some stage, Peter is going to go to a party with his mates, and it's obvious that they're going to there's going to be drink there and stuff, and he's hoping presumably to get drunk and get off with some girl. But his mum forces him to take his little sister along with him. And again, another very cute moment of domestic agony for a teenage boy. It, you know, his mum sort of uh, browbeats him into taking him. Charlie tags along with her brother and he drives over in their Volvo. But they go to the uh, party. All the kids are there drinking out of red cups like Americans do. What is this with the what, red what, cup.
2: What, thing. What I, I was going to ask, why do they always drink out of red plastic cups in American films? It's weird,
0: it's isn't it? a
2: party tradition, isn't it? Red Solo cup. It's, it, it's a trope, isn't it? it? It indicates I'm. we are young. We, we are probably underage. Are they the underage booze cups? Is that to signify that they're, they're too young it's to be It's a bit odd to, to always use the same cup when you're underage drinking, isn't it? It would make it yeah. very easy for police yeah. to
1: identify.
2: <laughs> the first thing we see when they arrive at the party as well is you see a, a massive, like a table's worth, tabletop's worth of peanuts being chopped up Oh and, yeah, and you yeah. think, oh Lord, is this is this a casualty for foreshadowing of what's going to happen to poor Charlie? And of then, course, uh, it is. As, yeah. as some one reviewer on YouTube said, you know, what what teenage beery party do you know where people are baking cakes? <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit. It does seem a bit odd, doesn't it? But I just wondered if it was a bit of smoke screening, You know,
0: the red Solo cups are one beer pong. You can't play beer pong without them. Uh, and two, you know, American parties are keg based. Yeah. So if you've got kegs, you need
2: a then cup. you need red solo cups. You know. Fair dues. That's a good answer.
0: Like the ironic their ironic cultural status started again, I think, ten years ago with like a song "Red Solo Cup" that became viral. And so, like, they were quite an old fashioned thing, but I think they've come back recently. as kind of like an ironic kind of thing. You know,
2: there was the thing we're talking about with uh, morality and horror films, that it's usually young couple maybe having a smooch in the backseat of a car, gets attacked by a monster in the night. I suppose, in a way, that, that, that trope was triggered in me in this with this thing, because Peter's lied to go to this party. He says it's a school event, doesn't he? And he, he said it was a barbecue. System. A barbecue. She said it was that's a right. barbecue. She says, "Oh, you don't want to eat with us. Oh but no, yeah, I'll it, eat with it, you." And then I yeah. will go to the barbecue. Oh, right. That makes oh, yeah, sense. that's right. He takes both meals, doesn't it, greedy bugger? <laughs> but he's, but he's, he's um, he obviously wants. There's a girly fancies because we've seen him staring at her bottom at school. He, they made a point of showing us that, and he, he wants to go to this party and help get loose and help her get loose, and then presumably have a smooch. But it's it it, it involves lying. Taking his little sister and putting her in danger, and and I just mm. wondered if if you chaps thought that that was another morality thing, like this all this all happens because Peter's essentially being naughty, yeah, and told and lies. Horror movies always seem to have to play
1: out sort of karmic kind of justice thing, don't they? So he's sinning, isn't he? He's lusting after this girl. He's going to lie, go to the party, drink. He's going to do a bong, and then. But really, what Peter does, in fact, is obviously. He has got to go and socialise. That's why he's at the party. He sends Charlie off to go and get some cake at the kitchen. Obviously, the cake's got nuts in it. Charlie yams the cake and starts having an anaphylactic shock. And Peter does the responsible and brotherly thing of immediately identifying this uh, as she's starting to... Her throat is swelling up and she can't breathe properly. And he runs to the car and starts driving to hospital. Yeah, He's doing nothing wrong. And, of course, what happens on the journey there where he's driving reasonably fast... Uh, There's a dead animal or something in the roadway, and he has to swerve suddenly. He's looking behind to see whether she was okay, I think. He swerves suddenly, uh, and he goes slightly off the road, just slightly. And meanwhile, Charlie's got a head out of the window trying to gasp, you know, the last breath of air as she's um, having difficulty breathing. And she gets her head chopped off by a telegraph pole. A telegraph Pool, which, if you were watching really closely, you saw a close-up of on the way there, and it's got the same pie Man
2: icon scrawled into it. Yeah. it's quite a shocking moment, isn't it? Because even though you know shocking. something bad's going to happen, it's like this is one of those where there's so many things have been pre-foreshadowed or for you know what's the word I'm looking for? Foreshadowed. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you're thinking, which one of these things is going to happen? And you know, she's got her head stuck out of a car window that's travelling yeah. at speed and you think, Oh good <laughs> lord, is it gonna be a decapitation? Oh it is Oh my god And that's that's what got it for me is I thought I thought it was still a jolt. It was a real shock. But yeah. what was brilliant is that you're still not sure because you don't actually see it. You just kind of like no. it's it's sort of inferred strongly, and there's a and there's a noise. But then all you see is Peter's face in absolute shock as he drives home and then goes to bed. So I think, I think he, he looks briefly in the rear view, but he doesn't turn around. Yeah, and, and he, I think he, that's the he, thing. He does We're... not
1: turn around. He goes straight back home. He goes to bed. He doesn't tell anybody. And yeah, I thought it was very affecting. It felt like very it felt good. quite real. I could imagine well, myself I felt, doing that I I mean was, I, I, could, I could imagine myself not doing that but I could certainly imagine that would be a way you might handle it if you were yeah. as you say
2: apparently this according to the Wikipedia page on hereditary this was inspired by uh, a real accident as well yeah I can believe it yeah. uh, a, a chap called John Kemper Hutchison was driving a car and his friend Frankie Bohm was a passenger. And 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 uh, he he was drunk and he would it stuck his head out of the car window to it says relieve his symptoms of inebriation <laughs> and he his head struck a telegraph pole and and was removed from his shoulders and Hutchison apparently fell asleep in the car and it was a passerby who came along and saw the decapitated body in the car and alerted the police that happened in Georgia in two thousand and four now the the animal that was in the road do you think it had been put there on purpose.
1: Yeah, I think we infer that, don't we? Yeah. It must have been placed very carefully just in front of the pole to make it all happen.
2: And I think if Charlie knows that she's allergic to nuts to the extent that it's quite severe, how could she doesn't check? Yeah, it's her own fault. She deserved it. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> interesting you see? one, isn't it? It's, it's the sin of greed that led to her death. What's interesting I, I find about Charlie is that despite her oddnesses, we don't actually see anybody being unkind to her in any way at all, do we? As, you know, I don't think anyone makes fun of her or is cruel to her. Peter clearly cares for her a great deal. Cause he now, reacts- we're supposed
1: to think, by the way, that Charlie is being possessed already by Paimon. Because yeah. she cuts the head off uh, a bird outside the school, and she's behaving very strangely, and she's being drawn to the different locations around the pretty large house that they've got. Uh, yeah, so... And, and also, there's a visual effect. I, I, I presume you saw this, but yeah. there's a light that plays across things when Pay is trying to direct people's attention or is influencing things. And I think that happens a few times to Charlie before this. So I think we assume that she was sort of semi-possessed. Presumably, it's one of those three levels of possession you were talking about last week, Paul. Yeah, at this point, she's now a sacrifice, as we learn later on. Basically, one of three decapitations that's going to occur to summon the king of uh, one of the kings of hell to his final form. Yeah, and so this whole story is really about uh, this family and their grandmother's original demonic or demonological aspirations to summon King Paimon. Her mother finds the body. This is where another of these director trademarks. Where she lets out this horrific yell. We're just focused on Peter in bed, and we hear his mum finding uh, his sister's body, and that's another quite affecting moment, isn't it?
2: It's a um, it's a um, a scream of pure anguish, isn't it? And uh, it's very much like Danny's howl when she finds when she learns that her family are all dead in Midsummer. It's just an inconsolable howling.
1: The mum's then gonna Annie. The mum is then gonna go to grief counselling about you know losing her a loved one. And it's there she meets Joni, I think, who later transpires knew her mother, but she didn't realise that until uh, the horrible truth emerges. But she's very consoling, and but she's encouraging her to do a seance, isn't she? And she at one point claims that she's been in contact with her loved ones, and she's I think
2: she's giving books about doing seances to Annie. She claims to have been able to contact her son, and I think she does. She demonstrate that to Annie. Um, she takes Annie back to her uh, house or apartment. Mm. They do a Ouija board, don't they? A move the. Glass it's a Ouija board. Stuff, that's yeah. right. And yeah. then Annie wants to do the same to try and contact Charlie. After the uh, after the support group, we then get the seance. Where things start to get a bit
1: weird, and there's also another weird scene. Did anyone notice where Peter at one point he's having a he's doing a uh, a joint or he's having a bong or something in his room, and he's got and he's sitting on the windowsill at night, and he's blowing the smoke outside through the open window, and you see a reverse shot, an exterior shot, looking back up at his window at one point, and you can see him blowing smoke through the window, but you right next to the, the position of the camera. You hear and you see in the cold night air the breath of somebody outside, and you're looking like over their shoulder or at, from their viewpoint. Did, did you not notice that? No,
2: I didn't see that. I didn't notice it's that. It's not
1: the only like flash weird moment, but there's somebody
2: watching Peter when he's in his room at that point. Do you, th- that's really Do you think that's probably one of these cult members just keeping an eye on things?
1: I think so, yeah. It's difficult to imagine who else it could be.
2: I think what you get the sense. Uh, well, certainly at the end of the film, that a lot of events are just are being manipulated and designed in order to bring about an eventual end. But there's obviously quite a long game being played here. Yeah. Um, as soon as mother, uh, as in grandmother, realised she couldn't put payment into her son um, for whatever reason, it didn't work, um, then she then fixated on her... Oh, and she wasn't allowed contact with her grandson. So... That was interesting, actually. It's like why did why did they stop her from seeing grandson, but not granddaughter? It's hmm. almost as though, so, so, you know, somebody. Well, we're told that it was father who um, who put that restraining order in place with son. So that's. Almost implying that he knew what was going on. Maybe it's because of what she tried, to, what grandmother had tried to do with her son, but not with her daughter. Mm, Maybe it yeah. was something to do with that. Maybe he would thought that she had some particular issue with men, so, um, or well, boys. So she just decided to keep her keep keep her away from from Peter. Uh, Things start to get really crazy from here, though, don't they? Uh, we have Annie discovering
1: the headless corpse of her. The interred mother. <laughs> well, but but in before the attic. that,
2: though, she tries to re- she tries to rip Peter's head off. Uh, rip it off, you say? Yeah, she puts a, she puts her oh. fingers in his mouth and yeah. and Peter wakes up and it's one of these one of her sleepwalking incidents and we we hear about one of those where um, she woke up one one night to find herself in one of the kids' bedroom and she doused them all. With Charlie that's like her. she thinner. doused herself, yeah. Charlie and Peter with um, paint thinner and had a lit match in her hand. But she woke no. up in, in order to stop it. And she while she's sleepwalking she tries to remove Peter's head. I think we're given to understand that Annie
1: is also being possessed by Paymon.
0: Is that a yes. fair thing? Because as one that point comes where, well, well, I later think on. she starts hovering in midair, I think. <laughs>
2: Yeah. But before that, I think, that, you know, I think she's, possessed pay, to she's possessed by she's possessed by paymon We see it happen at the séance where she tries to contact Charlie. Ah, yeah. Well, there's also um, a weird well, no, moment. No, no, it's not. Sorry, it's not that. It's when it's when she she tries to burn Charlie's notebook, and she see yeah. and when she's trying to burn the pages in the notebook, her it's, own arm, her own sleeve catches fire. That's right. Um, and then it's after. I think it's after that that she finds. There's another weird, moment. There's another
1: weird moment where she's painting. And she's been given a number of Joni or something on a piece of paper. Uh, and she's, But she's put it down, she's cast it aside, not really that interested at that point. Suspicious of it all, actually. And she later learns that Joni and her mother had been bosom buddies, uh, and he's increasingly suspicious of her. But So she's obviously on one level, perhaps unpossessed, as it were. She's totally against the whole thing. But there is a moment where she's painting. She's got a tub of blue paint or something on the counter and you see that blue light or that weird light flash across the room I think indicating that Paymon is around and she turns around and the first time you watch it you'll assume that she accidentally knocks over the blue paint but if you look really carefully or you slow it down you'll see the paint falls over without being touched and then she like look, turns around and looks and it's Some of the paint has gone on to the thing, the phone number of Joni, I think. And then she calls her up and then goes and meets her again or something. So (laughs) clearly, again, Paymon is playing his games, pulling the strings. It's very very spooky, though. Mm. Uh, But, yeah, she ends up trying to burn uh, the book that Charlie had written in herself. Puts her on fire, so she stops that. (laughs) <laughs> but later on, after the seance, things are going crazier and crazier. She gets Stephen, her husband to burn the book for her. And I, again, I couldn't really work out what she was thinking there. Was she think, thinking... She seemed terrified that she couldn't put it in the fire herself, assuming presumably that she would set on fire.
2: Yeah.
1: It, yes. But she'd, she'd moved all of the furniture away. Do you notice that in the, in the main room? She'd rolled the carpet back, moved the couch out of the way so it was an open room in front of the fireplace, as if she knew shit was going to go down. She gave it to Stephen. Stephen actually refuses to do it, so she just tosses it in. And then Stephen sets on fire. Yeah, And he burns it. You know, in that space that she'd made, as if she'd kind of planned it out. So or I was... if somebody
2: else had, because there are mm. other people in the house at that point. Well, somebody else must have put the dead body of a mother in the attic, right? Presumably when they were all at Charlie's funeral. Ah, yes. That's when I suspect, because some people I know have speculated that Annie did it herself, but I don't think so. I think they could have easily done it when they were at Charlie's funeral because the three of them were out of the house at that point. And the body's been there for a while because it's, it's pretty gone, gone isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's pretty mottled <laughs> and there's loads of flies, pretty grim. Now, immediately after that scene where Stephen is burning to death, you get an
1: exterior shot starting out at night, looking at the house, and it it flash cuts to daylight, which is. I was going to say it feels like another Ariaster kind of trademark, but there wasn't much of that going on in Midsummer. Uh, but there you see, there's another really cool bit you may have missed there, which is, as soon as it's, as soon as it goes to daylight, you you see that all around the garden. All around the land, all around the house and the tree house, they got a big tree house as well. There are naked
0: people standing, <laughs> standing around. <laughs> you know, it's that. Yeah, yeah. I did notice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> cool. Well, there were naked people in the attic too, weren't there? Eventually, yeah. The, I so.
2: think it's the moment where Stephen's. Um, burning to death. That's the moment, I think, when Paimon fully possesses Annie because she's looking at his burning body and she's freaking out. She's screaming. But then she calms down and starts yeah. smiling. And I think that's when you see the light go into her. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then she starts... That's when she starts behaving really strangely. And Peter's been out, I think, and he comes home and finds his father's charred body in front of the... No, wasn't he in bed? Because he gets out of was bed. Was in bed?
1: And oh, you're right. Yes, you he was see- in bed very dim, very dim light, you see in the top corner of his room his mum is there like a spider
2: yeah, yeah it's, it's, that's pro- yeah, that's, a bit, that's the sort of jump scare bit isn't it, when you see her and then she leaps down, and then there's that, bit, that amazing bit where she, he goes up into the attic and she kind of, sort of clings onto the attic door and yeah. headbutts it, headbutts faster it, yeah. than I've ever seen anyone headbutt anything yeah, has yeah. he brought oh, he's broken his nose by this stage hasn't he so that's why he was in bed I think because yeah. he'd injured himself hadn't he he at school he'd gone really he'd gone all warped and strange and it's when it, that's when he, he his sees hand. his
1: reflections smiling at him when he's when he's miserable
2: yeah it feels like paymon has already possessed him
1: that's you the see, only Paimon- thing about about this movie is it was, we're led to believe that all of this is part of a ritual to try and make paymon. Mm-hmm you know, give him a male body. But he seems
2: to kind of be able to possess people kind of at will anyway, doesn't he? Well, the end result appears to be that Peter has to die so that Paimon can inhabit his body. And it's quite an elaborate set of sequences that appear to need to take place before that, that can happen. You've got to
1: also have three decapitations so three deca- oh that's right yeah we've and, had uh, their and- mother's corpse being decapitated we've had charlie being decapitated and then the probably the most shocking scene in some ways annie decapitates is, herself yeah annie saws her own head off in the attic
2: whilst hovering I yeah, think well, yeah. <laughs> whilst being watched by naked people in the corner of the attic <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> whilst hovering yes that's right yes that's right yeah and then peter yeah. falls
1: out of the attic lands in the rose garden presumably breaks his neck or something but then Kind of, they transport everything up to the treehouse, mm. and the culmination of the ritual, and King of uh, King Paymon is crowned or whatever. And we
2: we know that there's something different about Peter because obviously he's, he's brought back to life, but he makes the uh, same mouth clicking noise that Charlie made, that which is another
1: Ariaster trademark, it, it would seem, because in Midsummer, although we didn't mention it, did we? But they're all all of the Horga h- 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 are going. Oh, aren't they? That's their oh. trademark thing.
2: Yes, that's right. Mouth and, noises. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Paul, what did you think? Uh, oh, I don't know,
0: really. I wanted to talk about the... I really liked the soundtrack and the way he uses you know, quite left-field music, along with very, very tantalisingly slow reveal shots for when the action's about before, immediately prior to when action's about to happen in the movie. It's a really good, uh, you know, signature key, I think, mm. where I think there was one in front of the fireplace. There's one in front of the fireplace where you know somebody's going to burn, but you don't know who's going to burn or what's going to happen. And so, you know, we start getting shots of their back from from behind the two characters. And then this the weird music kind of builds slowly. You know, it has to climax at some point. You know, when the music climaxes, something's gonna, a result is gonna be seen. So I, I kind of like that about the way he used slow reveal and music, slow reveal with his pan shots, uh, and 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 music at the same time. I thought it was quite a sophisticated technique he had there. It's the, it's the opposite of the jump scare, isn't
1: it? It's yeah, this is this yes. is where lingering. this is yes.
2: showing yeah. to be, very much with the uh, well. This is the the new take on horror, isn't it? It's where he, moving away from the jump scare and doing, doing things more slowly, the slow burn. It's tantalising, you know. It he's is, saying yeah. it, it, it is going you... to be
0: scary in a minute. Yeah. It's
2: going it's, to be scary in a minute. It's going to be scary in a minute. suspense, isn't it? And so I've talked yeah. about foreshadowing and the, you you just described think, yeah, sort of sonic foreboding. You know, it does yes, make sonic you feel very unsettled. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with I love with, it. with
1: Midsummer and this movie, I was just imagining, you know, what it would be like to see this in the cinema. And, you know, you can you can imagine the sort of slow gasping horror going through the audience, can't you? You know, yeah, when yeah. you're seeing Peter getting up out of bed and you, you start to spot that his mum is like in the top corner of the room. That was good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I think we'd better do scores before 2021 gets away from us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Paul, so, what about the jump scare ossity of this, this whole experience? I thought it was quite scary. Yeah, not funny for you then. No, it was, guys. It's hilarious this movie, yes. uh, <laughs> but also quite scary. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, mean, there
1: are there are definitely moments again. That are you know, you'd have to think would be funny if they weren't in that context.
0: I thought they were funny anyway. Uh, well, I, I suppose so. Yeah. When his mum the- starts to floating, floating in air, and then you know being able to levitate into corners of room and then she's got that kind of manic fast forwardy kind of jerky <laughs> demon motion I don't know how I don't know what technical term for that kind of demon motion is when she's you know banging her head against the uh against the uh the, the attic door yeah the attic door that's
2: what that's called now demon called motion, demon motion? You know, <laughs> yeah
0: that kind of but yeah, so I thought all that was really, really funny, particularly when she was like a little fly or a spider in the corner of the room. <laughs> I, don't know, I had a proper giggle about that. But it managed to be scary at the same time as being funny. So, so I give it a jump scare, a definite, eight for me. It's creepy,
1: I think, and yeah, creep is the right word. I mean, the climax, the crescendo of it all is a little melodramatic, over the top. But the whole idea of all of those people being totally under that spell, as it were, and all bowing down and th- these are characters you've seen throughout the the movie in you know normal life there's an element of you know the mask slipping or you know you seeing behind into people's what they really think which is creepy I, I i could sense that there was something over the top and a little bit funny but yeah it didn't detract from the fear so yeah i would i would give it an eight as well
2: um i'm gonna go high with this one in terms of fear uh, jump scare Score as well. It did the same thing as Miss Summer, which was that it, it it does the climax is somewhat absurd. It it reaches a, a pace, well, it kind of sort of goes, runs away with itself and and becomes. I, I think actually not not humorous, but like kind of laughing that you might do in the face of something that's quite scary, you know, and and when you're not quite sure how to take this anymore, so you, the one of one option is to laugh at it, and I, I think. Yeah. It, it, it was a bit like that. Yeah, certainly the, um, Annie's movements towards the end when she was moving very fast, the demon motion and the floating and sawing her own head off. A bit of me was kind of watching this going, the heck? And there's naked people stood in a corner watching it with big grins on their faces. <laughs> I mean, that was quite weird. The decapitation was shocking. Yeah. I think that was the that was something I'd say, not necessarily frightening, but definitely shocking and affecting. Well,
0: during the double capitation, which one?
2: The double capitation. Well, was, it was Charlie. A kid or... Charlie's decapitation. Oh yeah, that in, was in the car. That was re- that was a. Re- I mean, I really was along the lines of. Oh my God, what have I just seen there? What actually just happened there? And I was I was really shocked by that. I, th- I think with all of that. Oh yeah, and, you know, and the, the the real fear is is that group of people though, and and the fact of a cult that might be manipulating things beyond your ken. Mm. You know, it's, to, it's again, it's one of my regular things is is fear of of uh, power. You know, people. Having power over you and stuff like that, and I think that 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 was quite unnerving. So on the whole, it was a it was a creepy, scary film, but it was done with such a light touch in a lot of places, like with that flight. Well, we'll come onto this with effects, but the the light yeah. effects. So in terms of scare, I'm going to go eight as well.
1: I think we can dispense with science. So let's do uh, acting. Let's do acting.
2: Uh, acting, I thought was first rate in this. I thought it was excellent. Tony Collette is. One of the best, I think she's really good. Um, I know a lot of people are saying that this is a performance of a lifetime for her, but I think you know she's got plenty of lifetime left. I hope so. Uh, she had a lot to do in this film. She did have a lot to do, and it was varied. And she's quite believable, even when the absurd stuff starts going on. You know, she floated mm. really well. You know? <laughs> and st- no, I thought she was excellent. I thought Gabriel Byrne played the kind of the guy trying to keep a lid on things really well. So I think acting-wise, I'm I'm gonna go uh, eight on this. I think especially for the bravura performance by Tony Collette, uh, super eight. Yeah,
0: not second that. I'd maybe go a nine on this. It was a really I thought particularly particularly from the mother and the son, Peter. Yeah, uh, really good performances, very very convincing. Uh, I thought in particular when the mother gets slightly hysterical, uh, she does hysteria really really well.
1: I'll happily, I'll happily pitch in for an eight as well on this. It was excellent performances all around. So, special effects and action.
2: Shall I start on this one? I, again, I think they were all really good. There was nothing over the top. Which, given everything we've said about the film, you could it, it could easily have been. Even the decapitation wasn't OTT because you didn't yeah. actually see it. You know, you didn't see any. i uh, sorry, I meant uh, Charlie's decapitation, yeah. which was. I think by far the worst thing that happens in this film, but we don't see it happen. It's all, you you just know it's happened and then you see her head being covered in ants uh, a bit later on. And I thought the light effect, where you're seeing Paimon move around and influence things, I thought was really clever, really, really smart and, and quite a subtle effect. So um, all the effects that are used are not over the top and they're all very, very adequate at getting getting the point across. And generating a, a spooky a spooky atmosphere and I'll second totally second what Paul said about the soundtrack and sound effects and the music they're part mm. of this I think brilliant so i'm gonna I'm gonna go um an eight on that as well
0: I mean i I, I like the way the mum became possessed and became airborne and uh, hovered upside down and that kind of thing uh, so generally yeah I mean great effects so seven
1: I think you're right, I think they were restrained actually in a lot of areas. And it, it was it's not excessively gory, although despite the fact you do see the mother chop her own head off. So I think for that reason Yeah, it deserves it deserves credit for doing those things right, I think. So yeah, I'll I'll also go eight. And then we have script and plot, don't we? You know, in contrast to the conjuring where As we said, it was just a checklist, a bingo card of horror tropes set against a very ordinary like haunted house psychic investigator thing. We had none of that. It seems very original. It seems like a much more interesting story about how to interact with a demon realm. Yeah, I think for that reason, it deserves seven and a half, I think, for
0: the plot from me. I thought the plot was possibly the weakest area here. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, no, your score is six. I mean, it's never really resolved is... I mean, I think we're supposed to assume the magic really is occurring rather than... People going mad. People going mad and imagine it. Or, you know, 10 or 12 people in robes from the cult hanging around, and you know, using paratechnics to make people burst into flames kind of thing.
1: I mean, you're right in the sense that there's a bit of wishy-washiness about what the rules are for possession, right? And you yeah. know he does seem to possess people, but then they do this stuff, and then somehow the
0: final possession occurs. It's not really clear, I guess. Well, I mean, it seems that he he can possess whoever he wants to. So the idea is to make him want to possess the people that they want him to possess.
1: Present. Yeah, yeah. Who's who's in you charge see. here?
0: Yeah. You know, so that's 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 what's not satisfying is is it that he can or can't possess people? He obviously can. So it's purely a question of, you know, directing his energy towards possessing who they want to so that you know, they can follow his will and other people, all the people on earth can follow their will, you know, which is their aim I think, isn't it but, so it doesn't really sit squarely about what the rules are, how it works and and fair comment, that kind of stuff I'm I'm also left wondering a little bit
1: whether Annie was actually pro or against the idea ultimately yeah, well once she was possessed I don't think she was particularly
0: against it but, yeah. <sighs> you see, because I thought the twist was going to be it with Stephen doing it all, but it turned out now he's just going to die in the fire. But I like the fact that that twist was kept open for quite some time.
1: Alistair, maybe you can shed light
2: on our confusion. <laughs> Not really, no. Okay, you know, last week with The Conjuring, you, said you, you basically summarised the whole film in one sentence. Mm. You said you, you could describe everything that happens by... You know, a new very, 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 very succinct summary. You could do the same with this, but it wouldn't do the film justice at all. Whereas it would do with The Conjuring. Mm. Yeah, there's so much more happens in this. What what I'm trying to get at is that in a really simple synopsis of this film, it it could so easily be just a straight up demon possession horror flick. But it's not. There's a lot more going on. Um, yes, it's, yeah. the family think, subtext stuff is very yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I think for the for the for that original take twist on using some tropes and creating something new out of it, I think that's where some props have to go to the uh, to the writing. I think with this, so I think Paul's got a point saying it's um, it's probably the weakest area. But this is the weakest area in a very strong field. A mm. strong suit, though. So. Yeah. I I probably go a seven because it is still using things that are familiar, but I suppose it's that taking it's oh it's it's the, almost the science fiction approach, isn't it? It's taking something known and familiar and flipping it about a bit and putting a different spin on it so that it, uh, it it's just it feels very unfamiliar. So like whilst, whilst so many things were foreshadowed in the film it wasn't clear which one it was going to be until it actually happened. And sometimes it wasn't one I'd seen coming at all. So I think it, it kept me on my toes in that sense. So I think, yeah, I'm going to go seven for story and script, but I think that's still a respectable, you know, I think that's still pretty good. Overall then, for me, it's a recommend and a... I'm going to give this an eight. Yay! I too, I'm going to give it an eight. I think it was uh, one of the, along with Midsummer one of the most original... Films I've seen for some time. Very well acted. It looked great. It sounded great. It was creepy. Certainly very memorable. I would recommend it, and I would watch it again. So yes, it is an eight from me. Wow!
0: Oh, high praise indeed from you two. I can see. I can see why you why why you, why you scored it so high. I'm going to have to go seven point five though myself. Well, that's not significantly different. Well, I think it is. I think it's 0.5 different, Richard. But if you were rounding up, it would be the same. Oh, oh! <laughs> well, maybe it's not significantly different, but I think it is statistically significantly different.
1: All right, that's good work, then. So I'm glad yeah. we watched that. Yeah. What
2: about the next movie,
1: Alice? You have Ooh. some suggestions.
2: I do. I would like to put to you. I'm going to suggest give you a choice of three. Woo! I'm going to suggest to you a film from 2016, from writer and director and actor in the film Annie McVeigh, and the film is called. Alistair, nineteen eighteen, which in which a World War One soldier accidentally time travels to present day Los Angeles.
0: Interesting.
2: So that's one suggestion. My next suggestion is a film from twenty nineteen by director Justin Petty called Nothing Really Happens. <laughs> the description of which is: a mattress store owner's banal life is threatened by surreal anomalies that begin to infect his reality. And I've seen the trailer, and that looks like one of the most bizarre films I've ever not seen yet. But do you know what I mean? It looks looks particularly weird. And then the third film I'm going to suggest is quite an old Italian vampire flick, The Beyond, called called The Beyond, which Paul has been banging on to about see for some time. So that, I'm <laughs> gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna let that come into here. So those are my three suggestions. Right. So with great trepidation, then I'm going
1: to ask Paul to choose. Which of these three films? I'm going to have to go for Eponymous
0: 1918, I think. Oh, Oh. Alistair Alistair 1918. Yes. Or Sayo Eponymous. Sayo Eponymous (laughs) 1918. Alistair
2: 1918, yeah. That's available on Amazon Prime.
1: Excellent stuff. All right. Well, until the next time then. Oh, do you not have a vote, Richard? No, it's not a vote situation. Uh, someone just chooses. This is not a Say
2: democracy. So. Say who? <laughs>
0: it's it's a dictatorship. Yeah, you've dictated. It is. I've been on holiday to Turkey, so I you know I can't talk about how the British people do things.
1: We will follow your <laughs> dictat.
2: <laughs> Paul Rick told you to choose a film.
1: I did, uh, and you chose, and now it's a, it's a Ricktat It's a Rick Which ushers oh. in the end theme music. Composed by Paul, written by Paul, played by Paul,
0: sung by Paul. To me, by Richard. <laughs> you always go, oh, and the music by you. I mean, do you really hold it in such low esteem? Richard? No, I love it. I sing it all oh. the time in the shower. Oh, that just shows. I'm taking it the wrong way, aren't I? Who does the boo? Who yeah, the it? boo's for me. Richard does that. That's The best bit. <laughs> what is comes. it coming? In three, one. two, one.